When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we dive into the interview, I wanted to let you know about our FP Crypto Decoded event, which is bringing together experts to discuss cryptocurrencies in the blockchain industry. Join us for unique insights and observations about this new field on Thursday, December 9th, where our panel of experts will discuss the benefits and challenges of cryptocurrencies. The event includes veteran reporter Barb Schechter's special fireside chat with Grant Bingo, head of the Ontario Securities Commission. Whether you're a big believer in Bitcoin or couldn't care less about it, you may have noticed that the Bank of Canada and really central banks around the world are suddenly perking up and studying cryptocurrencies. Maybe they're even launching their own digital currency. So is a digital loony inevitable? And why are central bankers so concerned and interested in this? I'm Gabe Friedman, and I tried to answer these questions on this week's Down to Business. My guest is Andreas Park, an economist and professor of finance at the University of Toronto, who co-authored a design proposal for a digital currency for the Bank of Canada. My main takeaway from my interview with Park is that cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin get a lot of attention, but they may actually be a distraction. Park told me Bitcoin is just a digital sticker that's good at one thing and one thing only, transferring value from one user to another. But as he sees it, blockchain technology, which is what underpins cryptocurrencies, is way bigger than money. So we're used to thinking of our financial system as all these separate things, you know, your debit card, your credit card, you may have stocks and bonds somewhere else, you may own a car or a house. Blockchain has the potential to consolidate our financial system into one system. Everything you spend money on, everything you own, every contract you sign in one system. So if you think crypto doesn't affect you, you may want to think again, because in time, this could affect who makes money off every dollar that changes hands. And we can't really grapple with the implications of this until we understand the possibilities. I hope you enjoy the show. As always, it's edited for clarity and brevity. Andreas Park, thanks so much for joining me on Down to Business today. Gabriel, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, It's a pleasure. So I want to talk about cryptocurrencies and central banks and the monetary supply. Uh, These are all pretty heady subjects by themselves. Uh, in combination, I'm I'm not sure. This maybe this is a a bad idea. <laughs> it's a lot of it's a lot to unpack. That's true. Yes. Yeah, but basically, we're going to have a conversation about the future of money, and a lot of people understand that cryptocurrencies are convenient. They're accessible. They're a low cost way to move money around. I've heard you say that in the low interest environment that we've been in for the past few decades. Banks have shifted from making money off of interest to making money off of fees. There's a strong argument that cryptocurrencies could make the economy more efficient. So let's talk about cryptocurrencies as they currently exist. Maybe I should first explain how a cryptocurrency works and how we should think about this. Because I think it's important to understand that with the exception of Bitcoin, which is really just a digital sticker, the way to think of blockchain and cryptocurrencies is much broader than just money, right? So um, say the Ethereum network, which was essentially conceived in Toronto, 
is really a financial infrastructure which allows you to move digital assets around. And that's the phenomenal idea because essentially most infrastructures that we have in finance are completely separate, right? So we have a payments network, but even there we have various different infrastructures that are running in parallel. We have stocks and bonds that are kept on different databases. And the, with a blockchain like Ethereum, you essentially could have all digital assets in one spot. And one spot sounds like it's a scary thing, but because it's distributed, it actually makes it much safer because the same data is kept on tens of thousands of different spots. So now there's a difference between a cryptocurrency, which is sort of to be thought of as the internal mechanism that rewards the maintenance of the network, such as the Ethereum network has its cryptocurrency Ether or ETH, um, and then digital representations of money. You know, there's a lot of people are mixing up various different items that have very different functionality. So cryptocurrencies alone are not a threat by itself to the monetary system unless they become so important and so ubiquitous in people's use that they are essentially replacing uh, the money that we normally use, the, the Canadian dollar. But there is a different way um, how uh, money could also be used and how these crypto networks could be used, which are so-called stable coins. Now, and stable coins are different, right? A stable coin is essentially is a digital representation of for normal currency like the Canadian dollar, uh, for say for the US dollar, there is a few, like three big ones, and together they account for already something on the order of 130 billion US dollars in circulation that are running on blockchains. And so there's, there's a lot of problems that arise with that. I'm just summarize what you just said is basically there are cryptocurrencies which people are transacting in, and then there are, you know, there are government currencies that are represented in digital form in some of these stable coins. Yeah, exactly. So, but if you're not using one of these, I mean, what kind of impacts are these having on the economy such that central banks now like the Bank of Canada and a lot of other banks are thinking about wading into this area? Well, so I would think and and this is this is again my thinking of how the space develops is that central banks are not quite so concerned about cryptocurrencies themselves like ethereum or bitcoin it's effectively way too small as a use case um in the world that they would actually think that they need to take any policy action i think stable coins in some form and in the various different forms that people are thinking about them i think that's something where they are worried a little more so a very simple example is, for instance, Facebook wants to build its own financial network. It's called the DM network. They would call it a blockchain. It's a private network, though, which would be run by probably like 20 to 30 major corporations, including Shopify, for instance. And so the money would circulate on that network. That would be a completely new payment system. And, you know, the Bank of Canada is in principle in charge of payment systems in Canada and has the ability to oversee them, to designate them as systemically important and therefore has the right to oversee them. So that's something which is a concern. And the bigger concern came out and that could be relating to a system like DM is that, you know, it most likely will be run on the US dollar. And if it's very successful and people adopt it, including in Canada, it's very possible that we find, you know, what's called currency displacement, where people use, for instance, this digital money as opposed to the Canadian dollar. And that's a problem because then, you know, we lose our monetary sovereignty. The Bank of Canada loses the ability to have effective monetary policy and the like. And that's, you know, that's a concern for them. And now digital currencies that they could issue could be a solution for them. Right. And so now you have all these banks studying this 
why is this different from the financial infrastructure that exists now where you have a bunch of big banks maybe charging fees, but why is it fundamentally different for the economy, for the central bank? Well, so the first thing to know is that most of this is not directly affecting the average person, let's say, right? So there's there's a lot of technicalities in the background that are important. But let me just say this, the system that we're using uh, is still from the early 1990s. Um, and functionally, we really have not changed the financial infrastructure conceptually for, you know, almost a century, if you want to, if you want to push it really hard, right? So all that we have now is a electronic version of what we're doing for a very long time. So let me give you one example. We have something in Canada, which is called the Payments Modernization Initiative. That's Sounds like something that you want to bring, you know, the Canadian payments network, Canadian payment systems into the, you know, 21st century. Well, this initiative has been going on for 10 years. We were promised a real time payments network in 2019. Then it was pushed to 2021, now 222. And I don't think it's a surprise when we don't get it next year either. Now, why is this important? So the speed of payments. Is, so for, for most people don't understand what actually goes into it and why this matters. Simple example, right? You, you have overdrafts, you need overdraft protection because, you know, for some reason or another, you may overspend on any given day. That's largely a function of an extremely inefficient payment system. And, you know, in many cases, financial institutions actually taking advantage of that. So when I say banks create fees, you know, some of these fees are actually created because of the inefficiencies that they create themselves, right? Um, so, let, you know, the, the meanest trick in the game is this. If somebody, for instance, has, say, $120 on their bank account and they get 10 payments in a day, right? So they get one payment in for, say, $130 and then they get another nine payments in for five, $6 where they buy something with their debit card. Now, Let's say they make the 130, the large payment at the very end. And with that payment, they would basically go into an overdraft and all the other ones would all be okay. What banks do is they take all these transactions and they reorder them in such a way as to maximize the fees. So what some banks do is they take the biggest payment first so that you would have to go into an overdraft and they charge a fee for every single transaction thereafter that you go into an overdraft. And that's how you basically maximize the fees and, and banks have worked that out. And it's one of the costs of being poor is that people who have little money, they basically get dinged with such fees. We've heard things like in the middle of the pandemic, the TD bank increased the limit uh, that you need to have for, you know, the most standard account of having a minimum balance of $5,000 in the account in order to, you know, be exempt from fees. And if you drop below this at any point in time, you pay for every single transaction. So with that, they could create potentially hundreds of dollars worth of fees for an individual. And who has $5,000, right, in a, in a deposit account? The point is that the real-time payments is really, this is a really big deal. And, but the problem with real-time payments is it's not because it's hard, right? It's not a hard problem to solve. Brazil did this in nine months. They built a real-time network. It's because once you have a real-time network in, a lot of the fees that you charge and a lot of the income that you create would go away. That's the problem. Right. I mean, in Canada, we have this, uh, I wouldn't call it absurd, but this internally contradictory mechanism where Payments Canada is owned by the banks, but is there to operate in the public interest. So that's a contradiction, right? And then basically it's supposed to operate in the public's interest without having actually any impact on any input from the public. 
you know, this is, it's, you know, the fact that we can't get this done is a problem. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So let's back up a second. You believe that the Bank of Canada needs to move towards some sort of blockchain technology that's more flexible and convenient, secure. It protects the loony from being displaced by a private foreign currency and is generally lower cost, right? Uh, that's a really good question, actually. So, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds in some sense, right? Uh, so first and foremost, what I like to see, and I'm an economist, I like markets. And what I would really like to see is that there would be a market for the best product out there, right? So, so people can choose from it and the best technology wins if you want. That, that would be ideal. I am not so fond of, you know, the government imposing a particular, you know, technology on the financial sector, or on the general public by association. And, you know, there's so many technological advances going on. I, you know, and I think actually people in the central banks too struggle with the idea of should they really be the ones that pick a technology and then, you know, have everybody else built on it? And how do you update their technology? What happens if something better comes along? This is, this is a tricky question. Right. You just mentioned there should be a competition, a marketplace, you know, and the best currency wins. Are we sort of entering a new era where for 10 years, we'll use cryptocurrency A and then another product will emerge that's better and we'll all have to go over there. That that sounds, that gives me anxiety just thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, rightfully. So, and this is a tech problem to some degree, but I think the better way to think about it is you want to have a platform which is generally expandable and usable for a very long time and that you can build on, you know, so nothing which is too constraining. So you, you don't need to update it all the time. But the reality, of course, of technology is technology needs to be updated in some form or another, right? Don't get me wrong, right? So I don't think that current blockchain technology is actually already there for the big stage that it can be widely used. It's, it's still in a very much of an experimental phase. Um, but I think the important part for, for thinking about a new digital type of money is you, you shouldn't think about just the item itself. You need to think of the broader use case and the, and the broader technology around it. And this is, I think, where blockchain is so important, right? Because blockchain is not the blockchains that we see, if, you know, ignoring Bitcoin, because that can only do one thing, which is transfer Bitcoin from one address to another. But the, the, the bigger, the modern blockchains like Ethereum, Solana and the like, they're platforms for re digital resource transfers so that we can move bigger parts of, of our uh, financial infrastructure using a single technology. And so with that comes not just the idea of you, you build a new technology and then, you know, financial institutions get to use it. It's actually that you build a new marketplace 
for a new type of financial service that new brands can develop. And, you know, there's some phenomenal ideas out there already in, you know, in the normal blockchain world, which as I said, is still at, at an experimental stage, but things that work extremely phenomenally well and uh, that have great promise to reduce costs, to increase functionality and the like. This is the bigger question is we need to think not about just money. We need to think of a platform which can do much more than just transfer money. And so do you think that the Bank of Canada would be better off trying to regulate or wading into this very fast moving and experimental, but, but highly innovative new field? So I like to think that there, there are certain things that you need to keep an eye on. So for instance, the issue of stable coins. Uh, Stablecoins are issued usually by a private firm. They essentially take deposits. You need to make sure that there is a match between what these companies promise, which is that each dollar that they have digitally is backed by a dollar sitting in a bank account. So that you have to, you know, have to control in some form. But other than that, I would actually prefer to see uh, that we enable and that we encourage this kind of innovation. And then once we know where the cookie crumbles, how it actually works, then you can start about thinking about regulation, right? Because it makes no sense to impose regulatory constraints and oversight, which is unbelievably expensive on an ecosystem, which still needs to figure out what to do. And, you know, th this is actually a real concern, right? Because there's so many different regulators, so many different officers. And in many cases, these regulatory officers also claim jurisdiction over the same thing that you basically have to deal with like five different regulators to do one thing. Um, so it's not just the Bank of Canada that could be relevant. In the US, actually, it's a total nightmare because for some activities, you literally would have to deal with every regulator. And, you know, keep in mind also, these networks tend to be global by default, right? And so when something is global by default, you would have to deal essentially with 50 regulators in the world or more. Now, the responsible product uh, projects that try to actually work together with regulators, but at some point it has to be also rethinked by regulators of, you know, if regulator A has a given approval, do I really need, you know, them to fill out a form for me too? <laughs> so is that really necessary? So what I hear you saying on some level is governments need to sit back and watch this for a while, study it, which is what Bank of Canada and others are doing, but that the threat that other economists, yourself probably too, have talked about is that as more and more people start to use them, maybe this currency gets hacked and everyone loses their money. And so there is a certain urgency. I've also heard other people say to the Bank of Canada, either getting in the game and making a currency, I don't know how they make it relevant exactly, or at least regulating. Yeah, these. it's a fair point. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, the, the threat of loss for investments for people who don't know what they're doing is, is a real concern. The, the part which I'm, I'm having difficulty with is, so I'm, I'm looking at this ecosystem and I've spent a lot of time on it. And in many cases, I'm asking, you know, I, I hear my colleagues actually surprisingly, many economists say you have to regulate, you have to regulate it. But I honestly often don't know what is it exactly that you have in mind? What would you here be regulating? What requirements would you have? Um, and, and what, what goal do you accomplish with this? Right. Because ultimately regulation means you set a, put a set of rules down, but you know, oftentimes you don't actually know what the rules would have to be. I also think, you know, taking a step back, I think we should think of an economy and economic activity, you know, to, to develop in its own way and to give an industry the ability to do also some form of self-regulation. Now, so just to give you an example, this ecosystem, for instance, is fraught with scams, 
right? That happens all the time. But there is also a particular movement in this ecosystem to to try to identify scams. There are discussion boards about scams, and usually scams get detected in some form or another. So it's not like people are totally helpless right? in, in the light of you, you never know what is a scam or it's not, not a scam. People are trying to figure out ways of how can we identify a scam and then try to talk about it. So what I'm trying to say is it's not clear to me that a, a government a group of government lawyers is best situated to to identify you know how to deal with this problem the best way well what we're really talking about is the future of money and you've outlined some of the cases of the benefits and the reasons why cryptocurrencies are gaining traction but i wanted to ask you what's your best prediction about the future and, and specifically the future of cash do you think it'll still be in use in a decade or you know, 20 years from now? Well, that's a, you know, you mean real cash, physical cash? Um, I, th I think there's a space for that. And I think this is where, where we have to be really careful is about how people perceive, you know, the digital world as a whole. Because you see, the one thing which is really great about cash is that it's totally anonymous. I make my transaction, the other party knows nothing about me. They learn nothing about me other than I paid for them. And that's it. And that's okay. And I think privacy and privacy rights are incredibly important for our lives um, because there's so many ways how, you know, you can use information about you and data and, and abuse it and, you know, manipulate you and so on and so forth. And I think, especially when it comes to the discussions that we see around digital currencies, I, I am, I'm extremely concerned about um, how this would play out in terms of, you know, protecting people's privacy and, and the like. So let me, let me outline a few concerns. So the current rule of the land is that banks have to do what's referred to as AML and CFT checks. So, you know, they have to prevent money laundering and they have to combat the financing of terrorism, right? So you want to make sure that, uh, you know, the monetary system is not used for any of these purposes. So when we have a CBDC, the same rules have to apply. And just to be clear, CBDC, central bank issued digital currency, that sounds almost like a cannabis product, but it's a central <laughs> bank issued digital currency. Okay. Yes, yes yeah. that's right. Now, in practice, the reality is, in my opinion, is nobody knows actually how to detect money laundering with a CBDC. And so the only thing, way this can work is that there is actually a continuous and constant systematic analysis of all payments that go into the system. Now imagine, would you agree to your chat messages being uh, consistently and systematically analyzed for you know any type of criminal activity? Probably not, right? Would you agree to your your to internet search history consistently being analyzed for whether or not you're looking for illicit activities? Probably not, right? But would you agree to your money transactions to be analyzed? Probably not, then, right? Or at least I think there's a fair number of people who say, well, I'm not kind of feeling comfortable with this, but this is the reality of how it would work out. You know, in, in banking, there used to be an extremely high degree of privacy, but that has been eroded over the years because of money laundering and what's not, what not, right? For, for good reasons, always with good motives, but you would actually have to bind your hands as a government not to get into a state where everything that you do is being surveilled. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, if you talk to people about the, the possibility of having this uh, digital money, you can come up with any number of ways how people with the best of intentions say, oh, wow, we can use this for social engineering. You can go and say, hey, you know, kids that use the CBDCs, we can prevent them from eating too, from buying too much candy. 
or you know big big gulpy drinks or we can prevent um you know money that homeless people get for instance in welfare payments you can only use them for groceries or for whatever you know whatever people think is socially acceptable and then you can spin this further and say hey how about we impose you know by canadian or how about you can only spend cbdc's for unionized firms you can build so many restrictions in it and can dream them up there is a real danger that people precisely you know try to restrict your ability how to spend your money, which ultimately is is a is a big form of freedom. And not just in a you know illicit versus non-illicit way. So the potential for abuse is huge. And unless a government binds their hands really tight from the beginning, you know, there's you, you get a backlash potentially, right? So it sounds like you're making the case for regulation, but I think you're just saying eventually we're going to need to, but it does seem like there is some urgency to it almost. There is, uh, there, there is some, there's a certain sense of you need to think really hard about privacy and privacy is not just in terms of how private companies can use your data, but also how the government can use their data. As I said, right, you need to find a way how you restrict yourself and from doing that. So, you know, who can, who can access this data? How can it be used? When is it being destroyed? This is a necessity. And, you know, if there is a cost associated with it, that we can't get everything we want, so be it. Right. But I think privacy has to be, is, is like one of the highest rights that we have. For sure. And so cash and banks creating digital currencies, best predictions you have for what will happen in the, to those two? Okay, let me make the following prediction. Okay. So the blockchain ecosystem as it is will continue to develop. And as I said, you know, this is still at the experimental stage. So before this will really become a thing will be another five to 10 years at least. It's going to develop in exciting ways. It's going to be used, uh, but it's going to develop in parallel. Private private suppliers like uh, Facebook or whoever comes after will try to get into the market and build a alternative payment system. And what I imagine will happen is actually that these systems will become something like CBDCs as a service so that they, they build a system which then can be bought by central banks and they can run it. I'd be very skeptical, actually, if we see a CBDC uh, in Canada or anywhere else within the next five years. And if we do, I am not convinced that it will actually run on a network which will be leading to significant improvements in terms of financial operations. You'd be surprised. Yeah, I'd be surprised if we see it, actually. I, mean, I know that there's a big push for it. The BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, sort of like the, the, the group at which central banks get together, they, they keep talking about it and they're building an innovation center in Toronto for, you know, basically, you know, helping push the, this agenda forward over the next decade or so. But as I said, I'm, I'm not convinced that we'll see CBDCs anytime soon, but we will see private digital money and that will certainly enter our lives in many ways. And continue to grow, it sounds like. Andreas, I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk to me and share all your thoughts about this incredibly rich and complex topic. Well, thank you for having me, Gabriel. That was Andreas Park, a professor of finance at the University of Toronto. This show was produced by Bryce Hall, who composed and performed the original music with editing by Joe Hood and Yadula Hussein and web support by Pamela Heaven. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com or in any of our five weekly newsletters covering energy, the economy, finance, investing, and the workplace.